Hi there, this is Jeff, and today I have the absolute pleasure of talking to two authors of the upcoming book, Star Trek, The Official Guide to the Animated Series. Um, with me is Aaron Harvey and Rich Sheppis. Uh, so Aaron and Rich, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yes, definitely. Thank you. Cool. Um, so before I even dive into the book itself, I want to know how did you guys team up and how did this book come about? Well, you want to take that, Rich? Um, yeah. Uh, I guess, what is it, like two years now ago, Aaron? Yeah, I think it's been, been two years, yeah. <laughs> it's been two years. Um, Aaron and I were actually uh, colleagues working on um, the Trek movie site. And um, we didn't really have a lot of a like, crossover, but we had a big Shrek movie uh, group chat. And, um, you know, Aaron's talent as a graphic designer is, is amazing. Um, in fact, I just had a friend uh, look through the, the book that we, were, um, that we just published uh, the other day, and he was just like, he was blown away. And I was like, right, right, this is amazing. Um, so, you know, you. working with Aaron and just seeing the kind of level of work he did and then, you know, I knew he ran um, a Saturday Morning Trek podcast on the animated series. And, you know, so we, we had a little bit of crossover when we worked with Trek Movie, but nothing like this. And, you know, I was thinking, like, because we'd both been doing so much work for free, like, you know, hey, it would be cool if we actually get paid to do something for Star Trek. And we, uh, I was thinking, like, all right, well, you know, what's going to sell? Honestly, that's, uh, you know, like, Obviously, we both love Star Trek, so it didn't really matter what it was going to be, but um, what's going to sell, and I, I just I zeroed in on the animated series because it was pretty much the last thing that's been untapped from the original series. Um, and I approached Aaron, and we talked about it, and we both got even more excited about it. Um, well, especially when we found out that there hadn't been a book out there. That you know, We both yeah. had seen you know, bits and pieces of it in other books, but there was never one dedicated book to it. Right. Yeah, exactly. It was, it's 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 uh, crazy to see that. Oh, so so keep going. You um, so you decided you were going to cover the animated series, and then uh, what what was next? Um, well, we uh, Aaron and I sort of fleshed out sort of a, an idea of what we wanted to do. Um, we uh, we wrote a pitch letter, but what we did was different than normally what people get. Um, what people give. Um, Usually when people do a pitch letter for a book, they, they do like um, a couple paragraphs on a white piece of paper and they, they send it in. Um, you know, I have a background in, uh, in marketing, public relations, as is as, um, Aaron's um, work in graphic design. And we both knew that, you know, if we wanted to sell this book, we wanted to show them what we saw, what we thought it could look like. So um, right. we spent the next couple months putting together a pitch. We uh, did mock-ups for each section. Um, and, you know, once we had that ready, I think, was it, who was it, um, Aaron? It was Mike Johnson. I think we took the last look at it for us, right? Hello? Did, did he disappear? Yes, he did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um. All right. Well, that's okay. We'll yeah. keep going. He'll, he'll come back. Okay. Maybe. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think, you know, out. like I said, Yeah. We, uh, so it was pretty cool. So we, you know, it's so basically we wanted, we wanted to show them what we thought the book would look like. You know, because again, you're selling a, a, on, a, on a series that 
almost, you know, except for some hardcore fans, you know, or, or long-time fans. Nobody even knew what happened. And so we wanted to really, like, show them, hey, this is going to be a really cool visual book. And we knew also it, it had to be a visual um, for the animated series. If you're going to try to do a book on on the, on the Star Trek animated series, it really needs to be um, visually heavy because there's so much – there's got to be so much you want to be able to include out there. Like, you know, I mean, like, like the original series, you've got, you know, you've got your uh, – you know, you've got your wardrobe, your props, but for this, you've got like, you know, background paintings and you've got character sketches and it's just like, you know, from a fan standpoint, from both, you know, animation and Star Trek, it was like, oh, come on, let's see this. And, I, and Aaron was the same way. He was like, yes, yes. So um, we put it together and Mike Johnson, who uh, wrote the, um, st- I don't know if he's still doing it now. I haven't talked to him in a little bit, but. Um, he was writing um, the licensed Star Trek uh, Kelvin Universe comics, Kelvin Timeline, for CBS. And Aaron and I knew we wanted to pitch it to CBS um, because we knew it, it needed to be a licensed book. Um, and Aaron, um, Aaron, I'm sorry, Mike works with uh, John Van Sitters, who's the, uh, the vice president of consumer products. I think he's actually got a new title now. He's like the overseer now. He's, um, But he's, he's, you know, he has his hands, everything comes through his desk. And, um, you know, we sent a pitch to Mike. Mike was, like, all excited. He was like, I want to buy this book, which was, like, which was very encouraging, you know what I mean? Cause, like, you know, you, you're two guys in a room, you get this idea, and, you know, you just don't know if other people are going to respond to it. And, um, you know, we sent the pitch to, sent the pitch to John. Actually, we sent the pitch to Mike. Mike delivered it to John for us. And within that day, we got an answer back from John saying, you know, we, we want to go move forward with this project. And um, they were all impressed with the fact that we, you know, took the time to put together a, a real, like, nice-looking pitch. And, again, you know, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the words, you know, uh, the words are one thing. But, you know, as anybody walks by on, in a bookstore or a comic book store, it's, it's, it's the artwork you see first. And, you know, that's, that's what grabbed you, even in the pitch, Aaron's, Aaron's designs and his art, just they grab you right away so you can see, like, the potential this book has. So, um, and, uh, you know, so that's how it started. And that's pretty much where we got to the point where CBS said, um, I mean, Sarah says we want to do this. But then he warned us. He's like, you know, I've seen this stuff happen fast. I've seen it take 10 years. And, you know, in the back of my head, I was thinking – you know, the uh, 45th anniversary of, of the uh, animated series is, is right here. I'm like, I think this might be the time to strike on the iron tot. So I was hoping. And, um, yeah, by, I guess, I think it was October. We, by October of the same year, um, I guess it was 17? 2017, October, um, Kevin Toyama from Weldon Owen reached out to us. Um the editor, and wanted to talk to us about the idea. I'm back. Hi, Aaron. Sorry we missed you. Skype died, and it won't let me go back in, so I hope that the change in audio quality isn't going to be noticeable. I'm on my phone now instead. Okay, no. Oh, yeah. We can hear you fine. Yeah. Okay. Apologies. I don't... it's, It's... acting really weird, so it basically says I don't have any credits, so I don't know what happened. Ah. I, Aaron, I took him up to the point where, uh, you know, John Van Sitter saw the pitch and, and liked it, and Got I it. took him to the point where we just had talked to uh, Kevin, um, had reached out to us from Weldon Owen about the book. 
Oh, okay. Did you talk about how it was like unusually fast for what they were telling us, at least? Yeah, I mean, that, the that, that's the thing. Yeah, it, it did happen really fast. It's crazy. Um, you know, you think about it. We we got the pitch in in what was it? Summer, July. Uh, April? It was like April, April, May. It was April. Okay, yeah. So April, May, and then you know, a few months later, we had a publisher interested, and then I think right before Christmas, we found out that they were going to talk to CBS about a contract. So, you know, five six months, which was like. Hey, at least it wasn't ten because years. We were told that it could be it could be five six <laughs> yeah. years before that happens. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so it's amazing. Sometimes you have books that take forever, and then this one just sounds like it uh, was quick. And you already knew what you guys wanted to do and how it would look. So I think that helped them a great deal on that end. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you what. What the crazy thing is is like I remember you know we were waiting for CBS and Weldon Owen to come to terms on their on a contract. And um, so we weren't involved in any of that stuff. We were just waiting, and we were waiting. And it went, went a few months, and we were like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. The, the, well, the hardest part was, you know, and Aaron was jumping at the bit, let's get this started, let's get this started. And, you know, I just knew that, well, listen, at the end of the day, we don't know if they're going to go with our pitch. We don't know if they're just going to buy the idea from us, what's going to happen. So um, I, I think we were both very excited that, by the fact that Weldon Owen wanted to make the book that we showed them. Um, Aaron, was there, did we ha- end up having, except for maybe some, you know, organic changes that we did while we were working on it, I don't think, everything, everything we wanted to do, we did, right? Yeah, pretty much. I think uh, there were some, you know, issues with printing, uh, like, colors, just uh, as far as, like, uh, white text on backgrounds and black text, you know, certain things like that that are, are set for their international printing. Uh, so some of our design had to change, uh, as far as, you know, not, not dramatically, but just, uh, just technically. So we'd have to kind of reverse a few things and we had to move, you know, once you change one thing, you have to kind of tweak the others. But I think in general, the, the whole layout, everything was all relatively, you know, like you said, it was an organic change when it happened. So we didn't really have anybody saying, okay, no, we don't want this or, you know, we were actually concerned at one point that, like, maybe, like, oh, we sold this idea, they're going to want it, like, we want to do the graphics. And, like, that was a big selling point of, of, of it, is that, you know, we had had worked on that aspect of it a lot, because especially since it's such a visual, you know, medium, trying to get that, the idea of taking animation and bringing it into a book and still keeping it kind of dynamic. Yeah, we were lucky yeah. they, um they liked everything about what we pitched and the partnership. They were they were very open to bringing us both on um, and letting us both work on you know what our skill sets were um, going to help with the, make the book the best possible publication there was. Well, I have to say, um, being a fan of the animated series myself, that I found your book to be more dynamic than the actual animation on the show. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Thank you. Wow. <laughs> Um, that's, that's I high actually, praise. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, well, it, it was you just made it look so pretty, and uh, you gave me a lot of information about each episode, and I just really love that you talked to the right people, and you also filled in some gaps for me. One example is you discussed the missing body parts from the yeah. animation sequences, and um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, I now that you answered that one, is why was there so much head nodding? 
you know, you see someone talking and on the same screen, like maybe Kirk would be talking and you see Spock just kind of nodding his head. <laughs> I think because they want to have some bit of motion happening, otherwise you are literally cutting to a still image of a person standing. You know, if you look at a real person, there's a little bit of, you know, movement, but when you're, you know, they don't do a, you know, a lot of head nodding and stuff, but they're also not animated where nothing else is moving in the background. So I think there's a lot of just trying to to keep the scene dynamic while not, you know, expending a lot. They can use essentially macros, basically. They can use the same, same animation head movement on a different tweak of a body or something like that so they can kind of mix and match and, and create uh, a little bit of variety. Um, but I think that's, that's the main reason. Uh, Rich, do you agree? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, from from that standpoint, you don't want to have a screen with just somebody looking and well, actually just a blank pic, like a static picture. So, um, Especially because they you know, have a lot of static backgrounds already. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's just, you know, it's the character being engaged with the other character. Yeah. Um, so talk a bit about uh, the missing body parts. I was surprised by the reason why. Yeah, well, basically, uh, you have uh, only a certain amount of layers. What, what I'll go back to, doing animation in the 1970s, you had layers of acetate that you would draw on and paint, and that would, would create your background, your foreground. It would be like if your hand was moving in the scene, the hand would be on a separate layer. The head was moving, like we were just talking about, that's on a separate layer. So you have only so many layers until you the plastic starts to get a little bit denser and the colors start to change in the background. And you also start to get a little bit of a shadow because you've got layers on layers on layers and there's a little bit of a depth there. Um, so you actually, your, your colors actually start changing. In fact, they actually had, depending on what layer you were painting on, you had different paint because then it all came across the same. So Spock's arm didn't look lighter or darker depending on if it was moving or not. Um, and there would be times when there were too many layers in the scene to accomplish everything they wanted to. So they would have to say, okay, what can we take out in this scene that people aren't going to maybe necessarily notice or that we don't need um, just from this layer? And so that's why in the first episode, uh, Beyond the Farthest Star, Scotty basically has no uh, torso in one scene when he's tapping on engineering count, uh, console. And some people don't notice it because his pants are, are grayish black, the console is black. But if you're looking in the right place, you're like, oh, he has no legs. <laughs> it's just a transparent <laughs> aluminum pants or something, you know. <laughs> or just, right. um, so, yeah, so they would, like they would remove that. And they said that, uh, I think Bob gave us some examples that it happened a lot more also in uh, Fat Albert uh, cartoon that, that uh, that was something they regularly had to do because they had so many characters moving at one time. That's the same company, Filmation, yeah, right. Yes, same, yeah, correct, Filmation. Yeah, it's crazy so that, that they, you know, think about, like, today, what you can do on a computer, and, you know, back then you had to be um, flexible and, you know, 
what's going to serve the story the best. You know, what can we lose? We'll lose Scotty's legs. He doesn't need him anyway. <laughs> or, you know, you get an occasional, like, the wrong hand because they, they did use lots of mix and match. Uh, basically, they had, like, certain movements that would be used for every character. There was an a episode of the, um, uh, what was it? Oh, the Lorelei signal where her oh, yeah. has a red arm instead of uh, her regular blue uniform. So, in fact, somebody cosplayed that at Star Trek Las Vegas one year. They, they, they had a, a nurse chapel with one red arm, which was great. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Uh, what surprised you guys the most when researching this book? Aaron, you want to go first? Or uh, no, go ahead. I'm going to keep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think for me one of the cool things was um, was getting to talk to Fred Bronson, who was the uh, show publicist and also the uh, writer for the uh, the last episode, Counterclock Incident, um, under the pseudonym John Culver. Um, and he ended up going on and writing one or two Next Generation episodes. But when we were talking to him, one of the cool you know he was a, you know one of the cool things about the animated series in general was when Filmation and NBC had hired these people, you know, Fred was a Star Trek fan already. Uh, Bob Klein was a Star Trek fan. So they were like, they're all in. They weren't treating it like a, you know, 28-minute cartoon, a Saturday morning cartoon. They were treating it like a big deal. They were tra- um, Fred Bronson, you know, was sending out press releases like it was, an, uh, like it was a primetime show, like it was before. So um, the first day when the cast got together for, for recording, you know, he brought a photographer um, it's that famous picture you see in L.A. Times of uh, Shatner, D. Kelly, and, and Leonard Nimoy together. And um, the interesting thing is, though, they actually didn't record that day because the only people present were those three and Magel Barrett and uh, Jimmy Doohan. Well, and, you know, it turns out that, you know, originally we knew that Walter Koenig didn't, wasn't coming back because they um, – because of budgetary reasons. Well, it turns out, and this is what we found out, that, you know, they actually didn't bring back they weren't bringing back George Takei or Nichelle Nichols either, um, which was just like, but the characters are coming back. And so to hear Leonard Nimoy, when he gets there and goes, okay, where are these guys? And like, oh, they're not coming back. And he's like, what? You know, and Fred's telling us the story, and Fred's like, oh, that's it. This show's over. <laughs> you know, it's pretty funny, like, <laughs> yeah. how, how quick it was going to, like, end. But it was, you know, Leonard Nimoy took a line in the stand and talked about how, you know, the show is the show's about diversity, about the betrayal, and these two actors were key in that, and you can't not have them voice their characters. Can you imagine if they had, um, imagine if it was today and they, they had actual, like, white male and white female actors and actresses voice their characters. Man, you know, you talk about, the, yeah. you know, you lose all of that. Um, so that was, for me, that was probably one of the more fascinating things and how his pushback ended up. You know, I, I think a little bit later they ended up having all of them back, except for, of course, Walter, um, which is unfortunate um, if you think about it. Just like you couldn't. Have he, he ended up writing an episode, though. He did. He ended up writing. Um, oh, <laughs> Infinite out. Vulcan. Was, Infinite Vulcan. Yeah, and um, well, Aaron actually interviewed Walter, and they talked about how that experience was. The cool thing for Walter was, um, you know, he was just starting to write. And um, was he, first, uh, had, uh, I think, published piece. Yeah, it was his first paid gig, right? And he would give yeah. um, he would give Roddenberry's secretary his scripts to type up for him, 
And she was so impressed, she forwarded on to Gene, and they said, all right, let's 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 bring him in. So I think he had to do, like, what was it, like, eight million drafts for him? <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was not his most uh, favored uh, writing experience, but I think a lot of people who ended up working with Gene probably had that, that reaction. Bob Klein, uh, who somebody that we interviewed uh, quite uh, in this book, um, he when he was doing his the the ship for the very first episode, ended up oh, yeah. about a hundred drafts. Um because Gene just basically would say, Do this and not give details and so it was just sort of like he'll know it when he sees it, so it was just sort of like shooting in the dark. But they ended up reusing those concepts in the time trap as kind of these floating ships in the background. So they it, it did actually end up paying off in the long run because they had these really detailed <laughs> ship designs that they uh, that didn't actually need. Um, but, yeah, so he, uh, he definitely he, – he had a better experience with other, other writing projects. He went on to work on Lost, uh, A Land of the Lost with David Gerald, who wrote Trouble, Trouble of Tribbles and wrote some kind of pivotal episodes of that show too. It's amazing. It's my childhood, I love it. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a lot. It's very interesting to watch the crossover between Star Trek or Star Trek the animated series and uh, like the Six Million Dollar Man, Land of the Lost, Wonder Woman, and then going into like Buck Rogers. There's just sort of this this weird line that takes you through, and then people jump off in different shows. But there's this sort of kind of a through line. And I think they end up in, well, and, and you know, it starts with like Batman or something like that. But it's, it's all these crossover of writers and characters and actors. Um, I think for me, one of the most interesting things. I mean, this is I'm a graphic designer, so kind of talking about the process was, you know, today when you work in a design company, basically everybody talks to each other because that's the you know you want that you want the the copywriter to talk to the the graphics person to talk to the marketing to talk to you know etc um it filmation was very very regimented because i would always ask bob like well why didn't you ask why this was odd or whatever and it's like well you couldn't just go up to somebody you you talk to the person that was directly above you your art director or whatever and then they would talk to the proper person but you could never just walk over to a colorist and say, oh, this is the wrong color. So I thought that was really interesting how regimented the, the process was of going through the building the show. And I think maybe some of the, you know, what we think, see as bloopers and stuff like that may not have happened if they were actually able to you know, say something. Because, you know, like, like Rich was saying, Bob was a huge Star Trek fan, so he knew when something wasn't exactly right. Um, but sometimes you just didn't have that voice, so that was that was interesting to me. A lot of the a lot of the behind the scenes, like functional parts of things. Um, well, and one so, of the yeah. things that surprised me was um, there was only six episodes of the second season, and that was that, pretty common for cartoons in the seventies, though. I thought they usually do like thirteen, and then um, just keep rerunning those same thirteen over and over. But. Well, that's what they, yeah, they, you know, I, I, this is part of our research when I was looking at that is that a lot of them would do the, the big number up front and then a second season, which was much more abbreviated, 
and then because they believed the children wouldn't know the difference, would just rerun other episodes from season one and bring it in. So that was kind of a, a normal process. Maybe not quite that abbreviated, but but yeah, the and it, that could have been just because of the price of paying all the voice actors. Ah, yeah, because I, I, I mean, it only went two. Yeah, it only went two seasons. I mean, you know, not and you know, you say two seasons, but there's only so many episodes, so. You know, although today, you know, it's like we we joke that at one point it's like the animated series had more episodes than Discovery because they they also have very short seasons. I think now they're Uh, back in front. Yeah, true. Um, (laughs) I'm curious, why do you think the animated series is not as beloved by Trek fans as I think it should be? And I'm sure you guys do as well. And do you think it was too adult for the intended viewing audience? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. Um, one of the things, you know, it's funny, I, I tried to include in each episode if there was something for the kids, because, like, you know, especially during that time, it's Saturday morning time, uh, with mm-hmm. the Fat Albert um, and some of the other shows, Filmations would always, like, do maybe that, like, little, like, moral message. And while Star Trek really didn't ever do that, I always felt like they were putting something in there that the audience could, like, learn from. Like, I, you know, like... Something for the kids each episode. Yeah, and, you know, I I would try to, like, pull out, like, things that I thought, like, were, like, you know, teaching opportunities. Um, The one episode um, when they're inside the uh, the alien's stomach and, you know, Bones is going back talking about how the the phyla work like, um, you know, it's like like being in the intestines of a body and they're trying to maneuver through it. I thought that was really interesting how they were likening it to that, so, like, if kids were watching. Um, you know, it's a great question about the fact that they wrote over the audience. I don't necessarily think they wrote over the audience. I think that they wrote Star Trek. And Star Trek was always going to be a show that, you know, it has something to it or some substance to it. It's, just not, it's not like just a regular Saturday morning, you know, or a regular action show, so to speak, you know, back. I think it's one of the reasons why it resonated so well back then. So I think with the animated series, what happened was, you know, you had two different groups coming into it. You know, for kids, like when we were kids watching, I, I mean, I, you know, I remember seeing the animated series and, uh, you know, I, I just remember the colors and, and the action and <laughs> the music, you know, and, and as I got older, I started to appreciate the stories. But, you know, that's, that's sort of like, you know, that's, that's how you start, you learn from that kind of stuff. You start, you start at a young age and those messages kept getting, keep being reinforced and I think that's mm-hmm. so I think it's one of the things like from from that standpoint I think what happens is today is I know when the animated series was released on DVD it's all excited you know like a lot of us were and I got my set and I started binge watching it well it's a little hard to binge watch um, and it's not because of the stories it's, it's really just because of the the animation in a way um, but I look and at the music, animation, like, you know, there's 20 yeah, minutes of music same. for the entire series, so it's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's a little difficult to hear that song over and over again. Like, yeah, 100%. <laughs> so I noticed that, um, you know, it's like, it doesn't really lend itself to what people watch now, how we watch TV. But when Saturn and I started going back and rewatching episodes at one at a time and, and, and writing things up about it, I really started to appreciate how well done, how well written the shows, the stories were. 
And, yeah. and I think we even mentioned in the book, in some instances, some of the episodes are far and beyond stronger than the season three of the original series. Um, there's some just, you know, and because of the animation, they were able to do so many different things that you wouldn't have been able to see on live action TV. Uh, the Shaylot, and not in a rubber Gorn costume this time, right? Um, you got right. to see the, uh, got to see the, um, the landscapes of Vulcan. Um, you know, you got to see them, um, the counterclock incident. Uh, you know, it's just, it's, 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 and, or even the time trap with the uh, Council of Aliens, the Elysian Council with all those different aliens being represented. There's no way they would have been able to pull that off back then, um, on a live action show. So right. I think that, um, you know, as, as much as your question's asking about, like, what happened, why, what didn't resonate, or didn't people get excited about it, you know, it was a Saturday morning. I hate to say cartoons. I know that's we try to stay away from that, but it it was made, you know, was filmation made it for kids because it was a Saturday morning television show for kids. Um, but I think you know Star Trek fans that gave it a chance and, and tuned in realized, hey, this is Star Trek. Um, and then you know after it ended pretty quick, but I think we you know a couple more years later they were already starting to work on the motion picture, and I sort I think I felt like it probably just became like a lost chapter in Star Trek history at that point. Yeah, like when I first first started doing my podcast, you know, we had a poll about sort of like what what do you know about the animated series or something, and there was somebody added a question. It was just like, "There's an animated series." Like we realized <laughs> it, it, was, it was actually was it became almost like an urban myth before before the internet existed. You couldn't easily just you know pull up a uh, a listing for it, and so I think the idea that there was there even this thing even existed might not have you know, been known. So I think fewer people, it might be less beloved in the sense of, you know, the, the just not knowing it. I mean, now it, it, it feels like it's going through a little bit of a renaissance and now, especially with new animated shows coming out, I think it's going to kind of, it'll become like the classic animated show. So I think <laughs> there's going to be people who will, uh, you know, look back on that. Um, and also going back to the 70s, uh, at one point, uh, there's, we've read a few interviews with Leonard Nimoy talking about how he was hoping that it would actually move to the evening because at that time you had evening cartoons. You had the Flintstones and there was one other one and I can't remember off the top of my head. But it was a possibility that they could have, have brought that into a primetime audience or, or closer to primetime, maybe like at 7 o'clock. Um, and I think something that prevented that was just then those actors would get paid even more. And I think they were just at the limit of what they were able to, to afford. So it, I, I'm curious if they had a bigger budget, if that might have have happened. But uh, I, I think if this cartoon was made today, it would not have had the problems gaining an audience. That it does that. I think back then, advertising was much more regimented, so it was harder to, like, what do you put in this slot? Because you've got both adults and children watching it, and that just kind of broke... 1973 network programming's brain. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I tell you, you know, part of that, we actually ended up benefiting from part of that because, you know, like I said before, Fred was treating this, when he was publishes the show, he was treating it like a primetime show. So mm-hmm. he was sending out full, full press releases on the show with interviews and things. And we were able to take advantage of those interviews that, you know, for most likely the affiliates seeing those press releases, they're probably not running any of those quotes. None of those Gene Roddenberry or Margaret Orman quotes. And now, so the stuff that, you know, a lot of the quotes that we were able to get, 
in the book, you'll see it'll say in a 1973 interview, that's from the press release. And it probably has never seen the light of day, um, which is sort of cool that we were able to dig those up and, and share them probably for the first time. Um, you know, obviously we can't go back and say 100% it never saw the light of day, but, you know, you think about the fact that it was for a Saturday morning cartoon, they weren't going to probably run into those things. Yeah, maybe the earlier ones, probably some of that. But when you got into, like, episode seven plus, you know, people are just like, all right, this is, you know, it it, it may have been in, like, you know, the Sarasota flyer or something like that. I don't know. But uh, I, I, I did some searching. I never really ran across any of the, the later ones at all. So, yeah. It was it was funny. Fred, Fred went into his garage, and he said, he goes, I've got something for you. I was like, okay. He goes, this literally fell on my head. I was like, what? <laughs> he, gave, he gave us this packet of the original press releases that he had written out, and they had fallen out of a box and landed on his head. He was just like, that was divine intervention. <laughs> it was like, I don't think I ever would have found that otherwise. So, uh, so yeah, it, it, it filled in a lot of gaps, and it was great because, you know, like we had Matt Jeffries, the person who designed the Enterprise, had a quote about the animated series. I'd never seen that before. That was crazy. So... And it was cool how Bob Klein, didn't Bob Klein say they had all those kind of pictures up too? Like they were using them for their, uh, for references, for their references for the show. So it was like, that was so cool how it just like lent to each other. And we were, uh, you know, we were kind of privileged to be able to see like he had his folder of, of inspiration basically of, of all of the, the things that when he was working, you know, backs of models, um, from the times, like the uh, AMT, AMT, is that right? Yeah, uh, AMT model kit, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, the model The Enterprise and, and the Klingons and uh, a sticker set that was brand new of, of, like, you know, tricorders and stuff. And then some really great black and white Polaroids that were taken on the, the set of the props. So they had all of these really detailed photos of what the props look like. And this is actually how we came across one of the uh, – the things that discovered in the book from the, the counterclock incident is that there was a, a slide uh, in this folder. And so I kind of put it up to the light and I looked at it. It was small. I'm just like, is that Spock? I couldn't tell. You know, so I put it on the flatbed scanner, scanned it all in, and it turned out it was Shazam, their, the live-action filmation show Shazam with uh, Billy Batson – um, you know Shazam and Mentor, the guy who basically mentored him. Yeah, uh, what a great name! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> and it turns out that Mentor is at least or the the actor who plays him, uh, who I cannot remember off the top of my head, unfortunately, uh, is the uh, was the the visual inspiration for Carla Five's son Carl uh, Four. So if you look at him, like the, the vest and the jacket and the hair, and even the way the hair turns on the corner is just basically the guy who played Mentor. So I contacted Bob. I'm like, is this what I think it is? And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I probably use that as, a, as a, a human, you know, physical reference. So there was this nice little, like, something that we had never seen before that, that was actually based off of uh, a Shazam show. So that was kind of fun. <laughs> Well, that is awesome. Um, and I was going to say, um, I was surprised. I was watching Practical Joker the other day, and there was a holodeck. I went, wait a minute. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of stuff Trek fans love 
you know, going on and beyond. And the animated series was the first to introduce these things, so it's kind of cool. Yeah, T. Kirk's middle name, Tiberius, that came from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it was uh, Spock's mother's last name, Grayson, was first in uh, yesteryear. Yeah. There's a holodeck. Uh, they also use the transporter to DH somebody. The Captain April. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's, yeah. I I hope we see April actually eventually in in a live action format. That would be great. I would love that for sure, yeah. Um, I know that's what uh, Fred Bronson was like when he heard that the, uh, the Enterprise television show was coming out. He thought it would be Captain April. As the first captain of the Enterprise. When they said first captain, he's like, oh, that's my character. And it turns out, no, it's not. <laughs> it was, it was oh. Jonathan Archer. <laughs> so, so I think one day yeah. it would be great if they, uh, if they did bring him into, into live action. Oh, that would be – I would love to see that for sure. Um, so i got to ask, what's your favorite episode? Ooh. Do you want to go first, Rich? <laughs> yeah, you know um, – it's funny because uh, there's actually two. Um, you, I yeah, love it's yesteryear. hard to pick one. <laughs> yeah, I love yesteryear, obviously, because it's just – I'm a sucker for a good time travel story as it is, yeah. and that one is just the fact that, you know, Spock saves his own life in the, in the past, and you get to learn all these great things about him as a child and growing up, and Mark Leonard comes back to do uh, Sarek's voice, and, you know, DC mm-hmm. wrote the episode, so it's just like it's awesome all around. And then, but the other one that as I went through and did all um, the work that I really, really drew, came to love too, was um, the Kevin Clock incident, um, the one that Fred wrote. And um, well, just because Captain I thought April. it was, yeah, was Captain April, which, did, you know, it, it, one of the cool things I loved about that episode was, was that message of ageism. You know, like they were being put out the pasture because they were old. And then, it was, you know, because of their age, they were able to save the ship. And then when they had the opportunity to decide what to do, he's like, you know, we, we led, we've lived a good life. We don't need to go back and, and redo things just to be younger again. You know what I mean? I, I just, I like that. I thought that was a nice message. Um, sometimes I feel like our society, we tend to devalue um, people, you know, the elderly, and they have something to offer, just like, you know, Robert and his wife did. Um, Sarah, so Doctor April. Uh, yes, Doctor. Yeah, right? yeah Doctor April. Don't forget Doctor April. Um, yeah, so that's they're the two for me. Um, that really like highlights for me that I just like I can watch them over and over. <clears throat> cool. Yeah, and I think for me also, it's, I, I feel like whenever somebody asks me that, I have to say like, well, obviously yesteryear. So let's just take that off the table. So it's sort of like that's the default. I think best episode that everybody really likes. Um, I think after that, there, there's two episodes that I always come back to. One is for a spaceship, so it's kind of hard to say that it's just specifically the episode, the time trap. I've kind of went down the uh, the the rabbit hole of the Bonaventure, which was this ship that you see for two seconds that was supposedly the first ship with warp drive installed, which now, you know, several, you know, 45 years plus later, we know that's not in canon the way it worked. Uh, so it's sort of been retconned to be the first modern starship with warp drive. So, you know, I had a, a friend of mine, we actually built out a 3D model of it. We we had Bob actually kind of help us with the parts that you couldn't see on screen. And so that was just a lot of fun. So for me, it's like as a ship guy, 
I really had a lot of fun with that episode, especially with all of the other uh, derelict ships floating around just to see all the, the crazy stuff that was there. And it had a bit of a time travel component in it. Like time cha- uh, flowed differently in this, basically this pocket of time. Um, but I think what I really, it, it feels very, very Star Trek to me and I go back to a lot is the uh, one of our planets is missing. Yeah. Because it has this cloud coming towards this planet and it's going to destroy the civilization but and it could continue to you know eat other planets throughout the solar, uh, throughout the universe or galaxy um, but they try desperately not to just destroy it they want to see is there actually an intelligence here and it just feels very uh, kind of the distillation of, of all of Star Trek in that one episode and it's you know, it, it feels like there are high stakes. It's it's done well. There's you get to see inside the warp nacelle for the very first time, which is kind of cool. Um, it looks a little bit like uh, spark plugs in some ways, but uh, <laughs> the, the the concept is there. Um, there's a there was more of a scene that was sort of taken out where they actually get into the turbo lift and take that up to the nacelle. And the only remnant of that is when you see them leave the nacelle, they actually go into a lift. So there was, there was a little bit more uh, of the, the discussion between Scotty and, and Kirk um, in there somewhere. Um, but I, I've just really, really always latched onto that as just sort of like showing off the humanity and just the, the adult writing that you could have for a daytime uh, you know, Saturday morning program. I mean, you've got children who are imperiled, and they were going to die. And normally, yeah. you didn't do that with cartoons. The, the right. only, the only, yeah, and the, the only episode that really probably wasn't kid appropriate was the mud episode. Mm. <laughs> um, just because you know the love drug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, Christine's making all these decisions based on, you know, I want Spock to like me. <laughs> yeah. So I'll... <laughs> well, there was also, uh, it was called the Lorelei signal with all the women and all the men just kind of fawning over them, too. Yeah. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah, well, that, was and, great, and, that was classic Star Trek, though, if you think about it, just because of the message there. Like, you know, all right, yeah. because they're, it's, you know, it, back then it's like, oh, it's a pretty girl. You know, everything drops, but I mean, just because it looks like Cora doesn't take mean, over the ship, so that's, yeah, exactly uh, takes control. In fact, that's what the and on the cover when we we did the the montage of all the characters. That's that's the the image that I used for her, where she's got the phaser as opposed to just you know standing there smiling or putting her finger to her uh, her earpiece or something like that. So I, I love that she got to do so much more. Like twice she took over or she uh, took control. Um, and there was possibly a third one, but I think she's just, it's just centered on her. It's, it's a little bit unclear if she was actually in command at that point. But she was, they they did a really good job of giving everybody something to do. One of the cool things I loved about her um, portrayal in Lorelei Signal too is that, you know, uh, she's a bridge officer, and, you know, established, you know, a bridge officer is, you know, a respected part of, of the bridge. Anybody can do anything. And, right. you know, she knows that Scotty's been compromised. And so she basically takes command of the ship from Scotty. And I just thought that was great because, you know, here you, you know, you see this strong character 
that's never been in that role before, but yet she has no problem, you know, stepping up and saying, okay, this is wrong. I've got to do something. You know, whereas, you know, that doesn't always happen. And But she's a lieutenant on the bridge of the Enterprise. She's a Starfleet officer. She's expected to behave that way. And I love the fact that they, they were able to write her that way, finally, that they were able to give her those kind of, um, I don't want to say lines, but give her those that, that role in the ship. And when I spoke yeah, with no, her... Yeah, no, this is uh, definitely something we didn't see the original show. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, it's, it's funny because uh, we were talking with um, with David Gerald about this, and um, <laughs> there's this great joke he tells us. We really... It, it's probably not a place to share it, but um, there's, this, you know, this this whole joke back behind the fact that, you know, Uhura gets to take command, and, and actually during the third season, they wanted her to do that. And... Um, I was, I guess, Fred Friedenberger said, um, "No one's going to believe a black woman on in charge of the ship, you know, something like that." And so it's nice, you know, it's it's only five years removed, but you can already see that Star Trek continues to push the boundaries of what's accepted social norms, um, push roles for people, and, you know, they're bre- breaking those those boundaries. And now. if you look at the the uh, Star Trek cartoon compared to the other cartoons that were running simultaneously. It definitely treated every person as a competent, you know, space officer. There wasn't, a, there wasn't any like, oh, you're a woman, you can't do that. I mean, we there is, there is female officers, security officers, in other cartoons. There was a lot of like, just even, you know, teaching like, can women do, you know, a, a job that a man can do, like that, and that continued in their filmation's live action stuff. I just love that they didn't have that conversation. They just showed it as such. That it was, it, it felt more, it, it was kind of ahead of its time in some ways. So that, that uh, you know, I just love yeah. that, that Star Trek, even in cartoon, kind of pushed that boundary. Yeah, it was groundbreaking. I mean, you know, it's... Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, And they so, also um, were the first uh, Star Trek to win an Emmy. So <laughs> because yeah. of... Uh, the uh, how sharper than a serpent's tooth? Kukukan. Oh yes. yes, coming back for his children. Yes, that was such. Yeah. That was another mm-hmm. good episode, actually. And the yeah. first, uh, uh, I think, true African, or, I mean, uh, Native American uh, character in Star Trek too. Yeah, Welcome Bear. Yep. Uh, voiced by James Doohan. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's. We can't have everything. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so this, um, we've recorded this, and it's going to play close to when your book comes out on the 3rd. Where can people listening to our show find you guys? Uh, you can find me on social media as at GeekFilter. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, that's, that's pretty much the easiest way to find me. You can't find me. I'm living off the grid these days. Trying to stay away from everybody. Um, I actually don't have social media anymore. Uh, so, um, you really the rich is probably smart. I, I, I do uh, theater as well, so I kind of have to stay online because I have to promote things. If you, if you Google my name, you'll find some of my Star Trek articles and Trek movie, Trek core, um, a couple things I wrote for Rogue's Portal. That's pretty much about it. Um, that's my True, yeah, you can no... still find us on our, our articles yeah. on Trek movie. And I, I, I pop in every now and then and do do an article or the last thing that I worked on was a uh, a uniform breakdown of the blurry blurry pictures of the Picard uniform at the time and now 
there's a little bit more detail, so it's not exactly as accurate, but uh, but that's out there. And uh, yeah, and I'm also I do um, uh, Star Trek improv. So we're we have a, a improv show here in Los Angeles called uh, The Improvised Generation, and we are now on a spinoff of that called Night Shift. So we are the ship, the the uh, crew that takes over when the other crew goes to sleep. Um, and I just want to put my request in for season three, Aaron, and I, I honestly feel like season three, if you don't do this, is going to be a huge missed opportunity, The Adventures of the SS Bonaventure. I'm just saying. That would be interesting. I, I, I still think that there there is a comic book or a something out there that uh, as, as as time goes on and people get more and more interested in the animated series, that we should be able to, to pull that up because if – if we use the timeline that we created, that's around the the NX uh, NX01 refit. So uh, you know, hey, we can have some some Enterprise characters in there or something. I think <laughs> I think it's future future collaboration with Dayton Ward and Kevin Gilmore. That's what it sounds like to me. And, and there's possibly there could be things in the works. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Thank you so much for interviewing us today. Networking. Thank you so much for taking the time it's, to interview us and for the kind thing you said about the book. This has been a blast. Yeah, thank, thank, thank you guys so much. We didn't so talk much. over each other too much. <laughs> oh, no, this, is, this was awesome. Thank you guys so much.